Welcome to Season 2, Episode 8 of Waddle Partners Market Thinkers Series. As usual, I'm joined by Drew Meredith, uh, my business partner, and our guest today is Chris Joy from Coolabar Capital. Afternoon, Drew. Afternoon, Chris. Afternoon, Jamie. Good to see you, Jamie. Good to see you, Drew. For the regular listeners, everyone will know that uh, this season we've been talking about big themes and how it's incredibly important for anyone that's managing money to understand the themes that are playing out uh, domestically and around the world. And today, the theme that we have to talk about is real estate and, to a smaller degree, monetary and fiscal policy. But real estate being, uh, as most people know, Drew and I manage money for mums and dads and Traditionally, or typically, their biggest asset or one of their biggest assets is real estate. So investors are always concerned about real estate and it feeds into so many different things in the economy. So, Chris, I don't think anyone, we don't need to introduce you. Everyone knows who you are. So we can get stuck into it straight away. Um, Drew, do you want to kick this bit off? I just had an easy one for you to start, Chris, which was how did everyone get it so wrong last year? Um Things like property prices, market collapse, economic disaster. You were like the only person I think that wasn't predicting uh, Armageddon. Probably twelve months what, to the day, Drew. <laughs> I think it is. Yeah. What what it's happened? Actually, How did you get it right? How did they get it so wrong? Well, we were probably lucky. And... <laughs> don't say that. <laughs> Ironic and sad thing is, you know, I don't really believe what I just said. Uh, but uh, I think. Oh, I think it's a classic mistake. People always extrapolate out from the current event they're looking at and they don't think about the second order derivative reaction. So for some reason, even though it was obvious we'd get a lot of monetary and fiscal stimulus, people seemed not to have accounted for that. And that was the key driver of our view that economies and markets would bounce back very quickly um, and also a key driver of our view that the housing market would recover quickly. Um, And I mean, obviously there was more nuance. We also, beyond forecasting house prices would only fall zero to 5% and then start rising again in September. We also forecast that we'd get vaccines developed and approved last year. Uh, and we forecast a, a very strong economic recovery, much uh, firmer than what any other analysts had in mind. So we argued that the unemployment rate would quickly settle at 6 to 7% when you know, Treasury and the RBA were thinking it would <clears throat> rise to 10% or higher. So I think just overlooking that second order stuff is the trap that people how, fell for. How do you forecast that? What are the inputs? I assume you have the same inputs as everyone else. Well, you've oh. got to forecast what is called the policy reaction function. Oh. Basically, you've got to be able to predict how Treasury and the RBA will behave. And I think I wrote an article in the AFR. I wrote one on the 28th of February saying there's going to be a complete market meltdown that's going to require extreme QE. And initially the central banks didn't believe that. And so they're actually a little slow with the QE initially. 
Um, and mm. then I think I wrote in the AFR on the, the 17th or maybe even the 18th of March <clears throat> that we would get, um, you know, extremely uh, aggressive QE from the RBA and also QE from the Treasury in the RMBS market. So we'd get the RBA buying government bonds and Treasury buying uh, residential mortgage-backed securities, and they announced that two days later. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that... Do you think that's lot... nearly an automatic stabiliser we should count on in crisis, that there will be always fiscal and monetary policy to support whatever crisis we face? Well, I mean, ex post facto, after the event, sure, everybody <laughs> talks about the Greenspan put, you know, the Bernanke put. Hmm. Um, but it's kind of like in the throes of the crisis everyone assumes that that doesn't come to pass mm. you know, we spent almost 900 million dollars buying assets in the month of march when <clears throat> all of our peers were rushing for the exits or their funds had frozen because they had no liquidity we traded in in march alone a billion dollars of bonds mm. and we sold about 100 million dollars in march no problems with liquidity and we sold 720 million in the month of April when markets were still very fragile. But I think what people miss is the nuance and complexity of life. And the more I think you accumulate experience, the more you learn to appreciate the importance of really dwelling <clears throat> on the tails of the distribution, the left-hand side and right-hand side tails. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what we did. You know, we, we spent a lot of time doing in um, particularly February, March, April, May, June, um, you know, we built COVID forecasting models that predicted the first waves would peak uh, in very early April all around the developed world. And that's exactly what happened. And the epidemiologists were saying, no, 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 the first wave won't peak until, you know, uh, you know in, in about six months' time. Mm. You might remember the Prime Minister ScoMo actually when they put us into lockdown in March, he said it was going to be a six-month hibernation. Um, it was in what, Melbourne, not in Sydney. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so the, what, what the model suggested were, or was that uh, lockdowns are highly effective. But I guess what we've learned and what the models didn't predict is the second, third and fourth waves. They weren't designed to predict that. They were only designed, our COVID-19 forecasting models were only designed to predict how the first wave would evolve if you brought to bear a um, aggressive and sensible lockdown. Um, so I think that in life, um, you know, it's much easier to assume away all that complexity and jump to simple conclusions. It's all good or it's all bad and not to try and you know, understand the true probability distribution that we face, which is, which is awfully complex. But I think in, in the macro domain, we, if I can say so, have done a really good job projecting you know, unemployment, uh, uh, credit spreads, house prices, COVID innovations, you know, vaccine development, fiscal policy, monetary policy. You know, we've, we've recently had a very contrarian view that the budget deficit would be uh, a lot smaller than what the government was forecasting. Now, the government released the budget in October and it predicted a 
$214 billion deficit this financial year. And we've been banging the table since October saying that's totally wrong. It's going to be uh, much, much smaller. And now the government is fessing up to the fact <clears throat> that it looks like it'll be $64 billion smaller. So only $150 billion Managing expectations to deliver a, a surprise when they when they do a May budget. Yeah, I think so. I think um, I think actually we're all going to be surprised by. Uh, well, again, we've been arguing since COVID that we're going to be surprised by the strength of the rebound, and I think that global <clears throat> recovery will be a big thematic of 2021. I think we spoke about this. I'm sure we spoke about this last time that we were super bullish on growth and, you know, the rebound and housing and a whole bunch of other stuff. And we know, you know, your, your investment isn't in housing, your, your expertise isn't in housing, but your whole strategy is based, not your strategy, your, your business is based on investing in the debt, equity, different levels of the banks, which are reliant on housing. So you've got pretty strong views on that. What do we just had the strongest month on, was it on record? Everyone likes to say on record. It's probably only 20 years of records. Say on record. What's, yeah. <laughs> on, record? Yeah, on record? Yeah, I think, again, that, that hasn't been surprising for us because in March, we actually said house prices would fall for six months uh, and only fall zero to 5%. But then we expected them to increase by 10 to 20%. Um, <clears throat> and the increase started in September. Uh, and um, that prediction was based in the movement in mortgage rates um, from April two, 2019 onwards. Uh, and initially, we actually first made this prediction um, in April 2019. We said it was reasonable to think house prices would rise 28% based on our modelling. <clears throat> and that modelling just focuses on purchasing power, so incomes and home loan rates. Yep. And we actually got, we said in April 19, we thought house prices would rise 10% um, over the next year, and that's exactly what happened. Then they fell about 2%. So technically, we were still owed about 20% growth, which is why we said we expected another 10 to 20 However, mortgage rates um, have fallen a bit further than we expected in April 2019. <clears throat> so fixed three-year fixed rates are actually down 1.6%. So if we account for that, it's more likely we're going to get capital growth of not 20%, but something closer to 20 to 30%. Mm. And you know, this year we were expecting... Last year, 10 to 15% growth. Um, and I think the risk is it's at the you know, upper end of that range, if not above it. And um, it rates so, the... Sorry, go ahead. Well, all that's happening here is, you know, we've never seen mortgage rates below 3%, let alone 2%. Mm. Um, you know, my three-year fixed rate loan is 2.0%. And so house prices have to adjust to that change in purchasing power. It's not a bubble. It's not irrational. It's just the asset pricing process. 
And I've got to tell you, as you guys know, I mean, every analyst in the country in March last year, including all the banks, <coughs> were forecasting house price falls of 10, 20, 30%. And I don't know how they got it so wrong. I mean, it, it really is quite breathtaking the <laughs> collective stupidity of the forecasting community. It's a quite amazing. I write, I write regularly about economists, um, <laughs> if, that's a, if that's a word, or forecasters, so completely understand it. And, yeah, so you're talking about there's no, you know, there's no bubble at the moment. Everyone likes to predict a crash, it seems, to draw headlines, but property prices don't have to fall 30% to become affordable, do they, is kind of what you're talking about. There doesn't well, have to be a crash. Income. The reason, catch the reason that's right. Um, and we saw that actually, you know, uh, between 2017, so from mid-2017 to um, the end of last year, Aussie house prices only rose by about 0.5% annually. And um, our wages <clears throat> were growing at 2%. Yes. Wages were growing at four times the pace of house prices between mid-2017 and the end of 2020. Mm. Um, so the reason house prices are booming is because there's been a huge increase in affordability. Is there a bit of an overlay of supply and demand or immigration? Is that a, is that a longer term concern or? Yeah, so population growth, immigration and supply, they impact underlying you know, housing demand and housing supply. Um, obviously building approvals, um, uh, impact the supply side. And what we're talking about is the market demand. Uh, so pricing power, <clears throat> purchasing power, and um, the fact that there's been this big shift, so a, an unprecedented reduction in mortgage costs, that means house prices need, need to increase 20 to 30%. So essentially, well, I'm being being a property owner. The the only two things I'm really worried about is um, wage growth um, stopping or decreasing, and potentially mortgage rates getting higher. For in the short term, in the short term, in the long term, the structural demand and supply factors have an influence. So that would hmm. be immigration and building approvals. Um, now, whilst there's no immigration right now we are expecting an immigration boom mm. over the next five to ten years so i think you're actually going to see <clears throat> massive migration into australia and you're also going to see population growth because a lot of expats are returning so huge numbers of expats are returning to australia so that's positive um, on the supply side there has probably been some excess building in the apartment market. Mm. But that's only a relatively small percentage of the overall housing stock. And I think that will get soaked up by an investment boom. So whilst we haven't seen much <clears throat> in the way of investor demand for housing, with gross rental yields you know, at 4 to 5% plus, in some capital cities 
uh, I think you're going to see a lot of investor interest over the next 12 months. I think the, the dial um, on the demand side will start pivoting away from first-time buyers to investors, which is, again, a, a perfectly rational response to the fact that uh, apartments and some houses in certain cities look very cheap you know, compared to what you can get you know, in TDs, so in cash, or in other asset classes. And what's the more important input into the economy, the cash rate, the three-year, the 10-year government bond? I mean, they're all pretty much, apart from the 10, they're at the same level, aren't they? So we're very close. Yeah, so for, I think, um, the, the Aussie economy, most borrowers, most you know, housing borrowers have been variable rate and their loans price off the cash rate. That's been about, historically, eight in 10 borrowers. Mm. Two in 10 have had three or five-year fixed rate. Uh, it has changed recently. So the share of fixed rate borrowers has jumped to 40%. And, but they're still mostly fairly short-term fixed rate. So again, typically about three years. That includes um, you, Chris. You, you said you had a fixed, fixed loan before, fixed home loan before. That's right. Yeah, did you used to have a variable loan? Yes, I did. Yeah, yep. so I went, I went to fixed. Yep. Normally, hmm. yeah, as historically the cash rates come down, you've always been better off <clears throat> going to uh, variable rather than fixed. Hmm. But given the cash rates hit basically you know, 0.1%, you're now probably going to be better off in fixed rate loans than variable rate loans. Will it go negative? Uh, it is possible. It could go negative. If we get hit by a big shock, uh, so another sort of external event, uh, it could easily go negative to cash rate. But the RBA is very, very resistant to that idea. And um, so I think the next move probabilistically should be up. Um, I should say the 10-year government bond yield doesn't really have an impact on Aussie house prices at all. No one borrows off the 10-year rate. And that's why when the RBA does QE and buys government bonds, <clears throat> it's buying typically five to 10-year bonds. And um, it is um, uh, therefore really impacting the borrowing cost or the cost of borrowing at five to 10-year tenors, um, which are really only relevant uh, to government agencies, so states and the Commonwealth, and to longer-term corporate borrowers, that doesn't impact the housing cost of borrowing. So we're sticking with that policy and quantitative easing theme. How do you, how do you see that playing out? You've been, basically, the RBA seems to have done whatever you said over the last 12 months. <laughs> have we got a leading indicator? I think they mentioned during the week that they're, they're open to increasing it. Is that, is that a currency play is that is that what the aim is to offset the iron ore price yeah the, the main issue the rba has faced is that central banks around the world have been doing much more qe than they have <clears throat> relatively speaking and that puts upward pressure on the aussie dollar mm. because aussie interest rates our 10-year rates are basically the highest in the world and what that means is <clears throat> A lot of people 
want to buy Aussie bonds. Yep. And that puts upward pressure on our dollar. Uh, so the RBA has no choice but to try and negate that. Otherwise, our exporters are punished. And <clears throat> any businesses competing against foreign imports are also disadvantaged. Mm. So the RBA, we, we thought they'd do QE in August last year. And I bought about three to four billion of government bonds in anticipation of them starting QE. It wasn't a conventional uh, or you know, fashionable view at the time. And they launched the first 100 billion uh, in November. They've basically spent that. And <clears throat> this month, they'll start spending another 100 billion. And we are, which is something we actually forecast in January. So we, we forecast they do QE2 and another 100 billion. And again, I think we were the first in the market to call that. Um, you were, everyone was surprised when it came out. So. And then at the same time, we also forecast right at the start of February, another third round of QE worth 100 billion, uh, which should start in the final quarter of the year. So they're doing actually a great job. Um, the Aussie dollar is around 76 US cents. Were it not for the RBA, all the data suggests <clears throat> it would be trading uh, above 80 US cents. Mm. And Aussie 10-year government bond yields were about 30 to 40 basis points above uh, US 10-year government bond yields. And now, because of the RBA, they're only about <clears throat> five to 10 basis points higher, even though we have a better rating than the US. So we're AAA rated, the US is AA rated. And is this, is this MMT or is it just common sense policy? Uh, I, think, I think most of the QE around the world is MMT. I think in the case of the RBA, they are genuinely just focused on neutralizing the impact on Australia of the ultra aggressive QE around the rest of the world. But at the end of the day, they are printing money. Yeah. And they're using that money to buy bonds issued by governments who are using that money to spend on their stimulus programs. Mm. So even here in Australia, you can, you know, easily make the case that we have a form of MMT, albeit controlled by the RBA, not by the Treasury. Well, they say it's not modern, it's not monetary, and it's not theory, don't they? So it's kind of just the monetization of deficits. Which yeah, I makes think that's sense. Right. If your economy right. stops, you have to, why would you run a surplus if, if the economy is struggling? Yeah, I think the, the thing that the RBA is really focused on is it needs to get wages growth in Australia up from its current level. So pre-GFC, <clears throat> wages ran at about 4% per annum. Today, they're running at 1.4% annually. <laughs> and to get inflation back into the RBA's 2 to 3% target, they need to get wages growth <clears throat> of 3 to 4%. How do you do that, Chris? How do you the get only, wage growth? 
the only way to get wages growth is to run the economy hot enough mm. to reduce the unemployment rate down to a very low level. And that level that is consistent with 3 to 4% wages growth uh, is, we believe, 3 point something percent. And again, we, we, we kind of flagged this in the AFR. And a week later, the governor of the RBA, Phil Lowe, <clears throat> was asked a question about it uh, by John Keogh at the AFR. And he agreed. He said you know, that they think full employment is either in the low fours or high threes. So yep. that's, their, that's their target. That's their bogey. Um, and, you know, it's perfectly reasonable for them to try and run the economy um, in, a, in a fairly aggressive way. You've also got to remember that uh, fiscal policy was what really bowed out Australia and JobKeeper, JobSeeker sure. in uh, 2020. But the government has to now <clears throat> wind back that temporary stimulus. And so fiscal policy will actually be detracting from growth. And uh, the RBA, in a way, is trying to act as a cushion to offset the impact of fiscal policy actually hampering growth over the years ahead as <clears throat> the budget um, normalises back to uh, sort of a more balanced position. It's, so it's about confidence, telling everyone the cash rate won't go anywhere for, for four, three years, three years now. It's more about making people confident in that animal spirits, I think they used to say in the US, didn't they? Because you need that for the economy to run and people to hire and invest. I, I mean, there's, right. there's a lot of people out of the workforce or the potential workforce too. I, I just returned from country Victoria where massive labour shortages, uh, no new Australians and no backpackers um, has put enormous pressure on wages in the agricultural industry. You know, they're paying um, substantially more than they were paying last year and the year before. So it'd be interesting what no immigration into Australia does for a couple of years and then um, the backpackers being absent from, you know, these rudimentary roles or basic roles, um, what it does on wages as well. Yeah, I agree. I think it's entirely possible that uh, we could get uh, a significant increase in wages growth over the next couple of years particularly if we don't get any skilled immigration. Um, we know there's already labour shortages in markets like WA. Hmm. And do you predict uh, RBNZ policy as well? Is that part of your, your input? Uh, if the banks have got operations over there, I'm sure. <laughs> You've got no, a model for everything. No, the New Zealand market is th thankfully a very small market. It basically has no impact on our portfolios. So I'm not an expert on the RBNZ's policies. Um, I do think it's interesting that <clears throat> the uh, that Westpac is looking to sell its banking operation in New Zealand. We're thinking, Drew, do you want to just try to bring up a, a, like a sum up question? 
Yeah, I just wanted to wrap it up with maybe, uh, so we've discussed everything from property, monetary policy, fiscal policy. Uh, all of our clients have investment in bank shares, hybrids, bank bonds, residential property. Um, how does it all feed into, you know, the profit outlook for banks, the debt outlook for banks, credit spreads in a summarised fashion, Chris? <laughs> We're looking for more predictions, Chris, like the ones you had last year. Yeah, sorry guys, it's actually a little bit busy trading wise. Um, so can you can you say that question again? It was more just a summary on all what everything, all quantity, you know, the, more of a summary on what quantitative easing, property prices, spreads, all these things are doing to the profitability, security, and changes in even macro prudential measures in terms of the the ratings and returns from banks, pref shares and bonds yeah i think um you know bank equity still remains a little cheap so we're looking for a cba to trade closer to two uh, and a quarter to two and a half times book value we think the other three majors can trade at north of one and a half times book value they're all trading a little less than that right now certainly the recovery in <clears throat> credit growth in the housing market is very positive for the banks. Uh, last year, we said their provisions are massively exaggerated. The likely credit losses uh, ensuing from COVID-19. And that's proven to be the case. <clears throat> so we're going to get large write backs. We're going to get a substantial increase in dividend power ratios. The banks are now massively overcapitalized. So they're going to have to return some of that capital. At the same time, you know, TD rates are less than 0.5%. And so people will continue to search for yield. And bank hybrids, we think, remain quite cheap. So five-year major bank hybrids are paying about 2.8% above the bank bill rate. And... You know, in 2014, they were trading at about 2.4% above bank bills. Um, <clears throat> and pre-COVID, they were at 2.6% above bank bills. So we think there's some significant runway left in the hybrid market. Uh, and uh, we maintain an exposure to that sector. We think the, bank, the major banks' T2 bonds are pretty fairly priced. They're sitting in credit spread terms um, in or around their post-GFC tights, uh, the major bank senior bonds, we think, look very expensive. So uh, we think senior bond spreads, which are probably around 45 basis points right now, will, excuse me, over time increase to probably somewhere between 60 and 80 basis points. So we don't hold any major bank senior. Um, but overall, I think, you know, bank return on equity uh, results should improve markedly. So I think you'll see the ROEs of all four major banks um, jump up into the low uh, to mid uh, sort of teen range. I think the sustainable ROE is still, as we've argued since 2015, in the very, very low sort of 10 to 12% range. But I think you'll see a bit of a, a fillip from, again, um, excess provisioning in 2020 and 
the artificially uh, or exaggerated conservatism that they were uh, compelled to embrace as a result of uh, their uh, excessively pessimistic uh, forecasts for housing, unemployment and the economy. So I'm very bullish to banks. I like bank equities. We actually do trade bank equities for a super fund client uh, and we've made a lot of money doing so since May last year <clears throat> when we've been exposed to that sector. So they've been, so they've been kind of offsetting net interest margin through credit growth. And well, also I think they've been able to... for TDs. <laughs> yeah, and I think they've been able to you know, capitalise on the very cheap money provided by the RBA. So the RBA has really helped mitigate... Um, uh, mitigate some of the increase in funding costs that they suffered uh, in February and March, but uh, they've had access to uh, you know, the RBA's term funding facility where they can borrow $180 billion <clears throat> for three years at a cost of just 0.1% annually. So that's a, a license to print money. And um, so I do think we'll see an increase in bank funding costs as they normalise over the next few years, particularly uh, you know senior bank bond costs, but I think that this should all things being equal be a golden period for the Australian banking system. Um, you know I think many of the neo banks have failed. I think they'll find that <clears throat> APRA, the regulator, will start forcing non bank lenders, who are you know one of their biggest competitors collectively, to adhere to the same lending quality standards mm. that the banks are forced to apply. That's not currently the case. Um, so I think that that competitive advantage the non-banks have uh, insofar as they're not regulated by APRA normally, yep. I think <clears throat> that will disappear because APRA actually does have the ability under recently passed legislation to regulate non-banks. Mm. So anyway, in summary, you know, my, my key, kind of key takeaways for the next 12 months are, a big increase in house prices. Uh, I think the search for yield dynamic will remain absolutely long and strong. And I think the four major banks will be some of the biggest beneficiaries of the post-COVID recovery across their capital structure, particularly their equity and hybrids, less so their senior bonds. In fact, quite the opposite. Uh, so we're actually uh, short their senior bonds in our long short credit fund. Because hmm. uh, we think, because we think that their senior spreads will increase. Great, Chris. Always uh, fascinating to have you on the show. Uh, enjoyed your insights. Go and enjoy your son's tenth birthday. Um, and uh, from Drew and I and Waddle, uh, appreciate your time and thanks very much. It's great, yeah. great always talking to you guys, and it's fantastic having such. You know, knowledgeable and educated clients um, and uh, we've obviously enjoyed the partnership uh, in terms of servicing your clients at Waddle and um, you know, happy to chat anytime you guys want to have a yarn about uh, what's going on in the world and happy to sort of ventilate our views. Thanks, Thanks mate. Chris. See Cheers. You guys.